Hi, and welcome to The Right Side with Andrea and Kim. I'm Andrea Ruth, and I'm here with, as always, with my co-host, Kim. How are you? I'm doing fabulous, Andrea. How are you? I'm good. I, you know, I'm not using our last names anymore. Maybe we that's because we're going like with Cher or Roseanne, and we're just like, oh, yes. dropping the last names. Although, we're you know, that well known. Roseanne, yes. Roseanne's mm-hmm. gone from not needing a a last name to suddenly she has to have Roseanne Barr put on her her last name again. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Oh, I just noticed that because she was back in the news. I was like, wasn't there any? But anyway, so we have a great new guest today that we've never had on before. And so Correct. why don't you in, in, uh, introduce him? Yes. Uh, today we have my favorite libertarian of them all, which is quite something. <laughs> Um, his name is Brian Nichols. He is the associate editor of the Libertarian Republic, and he also has his own podcast called The Brian Nichols Show, which I was um, privileged enough to be on a few months ago, and he does a fantastic job, so you should definitely check that podcast out, too. But Brian, welcome to our show. Absolutely. Kimberly and Andrea, thank you so much for inviting me on your show today. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks for coming on. And as we, um, as I mentioned, uh, Brian is a libertarian, and it's kind of funny because while I'm sure he's felt, I would say, probably in the middle of the political parties the entire time he's um, described himself as a libertarian, I would say he probably feels most, um, I don't know, in the middle and separate now more than ever just because of kind of the <laughs> binary mindset everyone has going on right now because you either have to choose one or the other. There's no in-between ever which is ridiculous, of course. But um, Brian, tell us a little bit about how you feel as far as being a libertarian in a binary world. It It's not easy. Um, and it feels like um, you're, you're either with or against everyone at any point in time, like forever. And there's never an in-between like you kind of mentioned. So as a libertarian, I look at – so let's say Trump, for example. Trump is easily one of the most polarizing figures in American politics. Either you think Trump is the Antichrist or the next Hitler or you think he's the next Ronald Reagan and he was sent down from, from God himself to, to save America. <laughs> and it's it's like you know you can't look at Trump on a case-by-case case objective manner and say, you know, as Ben Shapiro says, there's good Trump and there's bad Trump. Uh, you look at you know Trump's tariffs, that's bad Trump. Then you look at Trump picking someone like Neil Gorsuch, that's good Trump. Uh, you know, increasing the spending by over a trillion dollars, that's that's bad Trump. But then tax tax breaks over one trillion dollars, that's good Trump. So I mean, it's as a libertarian, I find myself really trying to uh, be a voice of reason in an era where reason kind of has been tossed out the window. It's it's really. It's an interesting situation to be in as a libertarian right now where we are in 2018. And who, if I may ask, who did you vote for in 2016? So I started out in 2016 as a strong Rand Paul supporter back in the primaries because I looked at Rand Paul as the most reasonable and logical voice on the stage of the 16 Republicans that were running in the primary. And I, like everybody else, was very nervous about someone like Donald Trump taking over the Republican Party for obvious reasons, most of it being his his populist message, number one, but number two, the damage I feared he would do to not only the Republican and conservative brand, but also as a libertarian, the damage he would do to the libertarian brand. So with Rand Paul, I was very, uh, you know, very excited to see him uh, and the prospects of him being the nominee in 2016. However, obviously... We, uh, we watched as Trump went through and took down every single candidate 
uh, piece by piece. So after Trump became the nominee, I became a strong supporter of uh, libertarian candidate Austin Peterson, who is running to receive the nomination for the Libertarian Party. Um, and Austin, and we'll, I know we're, we're going to kind of dig into him a little bit later on, but Austin was um, pretty much one of the remaining voices of constitutional libertarian, small l libertarian uh, governance that was running uh, for the libertarian uh, committee as the the presidential nominee. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, we, well, I mean, I say unfortunately, but I mean, Austin was out there on Glenn Beck's show. He was getting endorsements from the likes of Liz Mayer and Eric Erickson mm -hmm. uh, because he was really one of those few remaining voices. And then ultimately, uh, Gary Johnson ended up winning the nomination at the Libertarian National Convention in 2016. Um, and after uh, Gary Johnson won the nomination, you know, I looked at the three remaining candidates, and we had Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and uh, Gary Johnson. And I, I said to myself, you know, I understand the concerns that people have with a Hillary Clinton uh, presidency, and they were they were not unfounded by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, we can be certain that there would be two extremely liberal justices on the Supreme Court, and I think that's easily one of the main reasons that Trump got a lot of uh, conservative support, be it willingly or unwillingly. Um, but I just I couldn't bring myself to to look at that reasoning alone as a reason to pull the trigger for Donald Trump. So, you know, I stuck to my principles and I stuck to my convictions and I said, the I'm not going to vote for the lesser of two evils. I'm going to vote my my conscience. And with that, I, you know, I cast my vote very proudly for Gary Johnson. Um, you know, Gary Johnson was hardly the, the perfect candidate by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, you know, with, with uh, Bill Weld, who is his vice presidential uh, running mate, he was hardly perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So... Looking at the two, while they weren't perfect, they were easily um, the most emblematic candidates that we had running with libertarian values. So at the end of the day, I pulled the, uh, the trigger for, for Gary Johnson. My vote didn't go to Hillary Clinton, so I didn't vote for Trump. My vote didn't go for Donald Trump, so I didn't vote for Hillary. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I refuse to look at that, that logic that people always threw out my way. Um, as a reason to vote for one or the other. You know, hey, I vote my values, and I'm, I have a very clean conscience right now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrea. No, I was just going to probably say exactly what you did is say like, I, I as well, like, and I always love the part where, you know, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans both say, oh, you know, you, you, you were about to, you know, hose, uh, Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump won. Oh, well, we didn't need you anyway. It's like we're this like very powerful non. You know, we either we either didn't exist at all and didn't help at all, or we totally and completely hosed Hillary Clinton because we didn't <laughs> oppose Trump enough to vote for that woman. Like I, I honestly feel okay calling a woman that woman when it's Hillary Clinton because. <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, I always loved it. I love to throw the idea out there. I'm like, okay, so you voted for Hillary Clinton because you wanted to see the first female president. What if it would be if it had been Bernie Sanders versus Carly Fiorina? I just love to throw it out there, and they just kind of look at me puzzled. I'm like, well, what would you have done? Would you have voted for Carly Fiorina? Well, no, because you know she wants to take our rights away, and she's one of these you know corporate sh shills. I'm like, oh, so it wasn't that you were voting for the first female president; you were voting for your first female president. So get the yes. gender politics out of here. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. no, but, that, but we are we are setting up to have another most expensive election cycle. Um, you know, you were talking about Rand Paul, who uh, I've I've said this before. I can't stand him, but he had. Like, I think it was when they did the rundown of how many minutes, you know, people got on television during the 
2016 election, Rand Paul was at the very, like, close to the bottom. It was like two minutes. He had to, the one thing he, I do admire about him is that he has that kind of like, you know, he's very short man, so is his dad. He, but he has that scrappiness. Uh, he fought <laughs> at tooth and nail for every minute of airtime that, that, you know, that was, that was something that you always kind of like, you know, have to look at him and say like, okay, at least he, you know, tries to get out there. Whereas, you know, everybody else kind of gets their, their mics handed to them, especially Donald Trump, um, both by left-wing media and right-wing media for various uh, and opposite reasons. But, um, but you were talking about Austin Peterson and the, the big thing, and I, I enjoyed, you know, listening to Austin Peterson when he was on, um, I think in 2016, I probably listened to Glenn Beck most days. And like you, like you were saying, he was on there quite often. But the major difference and one of the things that, you know, I brought up to Kim when she was talking about having a libertarian on was it, my, you know, I, my two big things are always the pro-life, pro-choice issue. And Democrats very much or not, not Democrats, libertarians very much caucus on with the Democrats on the the pro-abortion being pro-abortion as a party and as a but you um but Austin Peterson was was pro-life and like you want to talk about that because um I believe you're pro-life as well like do you want to talk about that like being kind of an outlier within the libertarian party absolutely so I, I would start out saying I think that that premise, the that their libertarian party is is primarily pro-choice. It's actually starting to change quite a bit, um, and I would say that the voices like Ron Paul, Rand Paul, Austin Peterson, and then some some you know within libertarian circles, more well-known uh, libertarians being like Larry Sharp, um, Tom Woods, Jason Stapleton. Uh, these individuals are vehemently pro-life and the the reason behind the the pro-life position for libertarians that's really taking storm is the idea of the non-aggression principle being that you can't impose uh, aggression against another individual um, in a proactive manner to the extent that you're violating someone else's rights so when we look at the unborn they are pretty much you know the the most uh, at risk to being uh, violated having their rights violated and we had to look at the the idea: what is life? Um, and you know, we were mentioning Austin Peterson here. When Austin Peterson, uh, I, I forget the the specific show he was on, but he was talking about uh, the, the the value of life within uh, the womb of a, the mother. And he said, you know, if we were to go to to Mars and we were to find a single cell organism on Mars, we'd say we've discovered life. Then why can't we apply that same value to the life of the unborn within the mother? And if we're going to do that, and I, and I rightfully think we should. Then that means that that right, or that life of the the unborn, has all the rights that we do as as you know living, breathing human beings, um, and with that, the all the rights that we have should should also be carried over to the infant, and that means um, you know the right to life, liberty, and property. Meaning they shouldn't have to worry about being aborted because they have uh, at their core those rights, those natural, be they natural rights or or God given rights, however you want to look at it, those rights are afforded to the unborn. So. With libertarians, I think the libertarians as as a whole are starting to have this really big, you know, shift over to a pro-life uh, mindset because we are applying the the values of, of the non-aggression principle. We're applying the values uh, of you know the the rights of the individual to the the most the most at-risk individual, and that is being the unborn. That is one thing I really appreciate about you, Brian, is you're so staunchly pro-life. And I think, as I mentioned when I was a guest on your fabulous podcast, by the way, people go check it out. Um, <laughs> I mentioned that of all the political groups, I guess, I think libertarians should probably be 
some of the most vocal individuals when it comes to the issue of abortion. They are mm-hmm. focused on the liberty of every person, no matter who they are. And like you said, the unborn individual is the one who can't defend themselves uh, you know, more than anyone else. And they should have a voice for, you know, with those who are on the other side of the womb, us and pro-life libertarians should be some of the most vocal people out there. And I'm very encouraged to see, like you said, kind of a shift. And I'm, I'm very appreciative of people like Austin Peterson, who are, you know, a younger libertarian with a pretty well-known name. And like you said, who's running right now for um, a GOP seat, but he is very vocally pro-life. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And I would say of all the issues that I kind of hesitate on when it comes to, I guess, um, accepting the full libertarian platform, it would probably be the pro-life, pro-choice issue, just because I've run across so many libertarians who believe that abortion is something that should be supported as a whole by your group. And, and I obviously disagree with that. But kind of going off what you were saying about um, non-aggression, Recently, in the past few weeks, in June and then July, of course, we all know Trump has um, met with Kim Jong-un and also had a summit in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin. Um, And I'm pretty interested on seeing what your take would be as far as how he's done with dealing with them um, just, I guess, as foreign policy, just discussing, you know, what should be done and what steps need to be taken, but also kind of his... um, kind of how he's presented himself, I should say, when he's talking to the media or when he had that press conference a few weeks ago with uh, Putin and just kind of, kind of, I guess, speaking about these, essentially these madmen who are murderous thugs, pretty much. And he's kind of praising them in a way um, that is, you know, makes me uncomfortable, makes other people uncomfortable. But um, I would love to hear your take on what you think he's doing and if you like what he's doing and just how he should go forward from here. Absolutely. So one thing with Trump, and I think we can all agree with this, is that Trump is easily one of the most difficult people to look at and actually judge based on number one, his actions, but then number two, his rhetoric. And I mean, to, to kind of paraphrase Ben Shapiro again uh, in his show on, on the Daily Wire, he said, Donald Trump in the history books will be known as a man who has, says a lot of things. And I think that's so true. And we had to look at what Donald Trump says versus what Donald Trump does. Now, to what Donald Trump says when he's referring to, you know, as you mentioned previously, Putin and then uh, Kim Jong-un over in North Korea, um, Donald Trump has been very uh, praiseworthy of those two individuals. And uh, as you said, they, you know, they're, they are murderous thugs and essentially dictators um, within their respective countries. Now, taking that aside, as a, as a, a non-interventionist Republican slash libertarian, I look at trying to encourage dialogue between two nations as a positive. Now, I know a lot of Republicans will not like this, but when Obama went to Cuba and opened up dialogue with those, with those nations or with that nation, I was supportive of that because there's a there's an adage and to paraphrase Jason Stapleton, it's where goods cross borders, armies do not. And if we are able to begin dialogues with not necessarily the the governments of these various uh, nations, but to actually speak to their people, to be able to uh, perform commerce with their people, show the benefits of a, a free market capitalistic society, a free 
society that values the rights of an individual. I think that if we're able to change hearts and minds that way, it's much more successful than taking this hard, you know, approach like like the, the Teddy Roosevelt approach of speak softly and carry a big stick. Um, you know, if we're going to build up this this um for instance look at russia and look at north korea if we build them up to the point that we won't even engage in con in uh, any uh, communication with those two nations i really i fear that that will lead to you know stronger resentment stronger um feuds that will take place down the road versus being able to open up a dialogue to at the very least keep some form of positive communication now with that being said that doesn't mean we look at these these dictators like like Kim Jong Un and Putin and then lavish you know give them lavish praise. They don't deserve that. And quite frankly, I think when Trump does that, it's a a very negative thing. Um, so again, looking at Trump, it really is a case by case basis. Yes, I like the fact that we're having uh, open uh, negotiations and open communication with these nations. However, I don't think we need to, to put this lavish praise on them now. Speaking with the second part of the question, the media. So the media itself, um, again, <laughs> it goes to this you know good Trump, bad Trump. If if you are on the right or you know just the 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 overall awake to the the damaging narratives that media can put on various stories, and we don't need to look further than than 2012, for example, where Mitt Romney was labeled as you know this misogynistic puppy putting on top of the car, you know, hating the the 49% of American guy and you know this elitist pig and to see how they were so able to to frame a genuinely good man as you know this this terrible human being. We know how scary it is when the narrative can be framed in such a damning way. However, the media does have a role. And when Trump, for example, um, didn't allow the uh, – I forget her name, the CNN reporter to uh, join the press – Yeah, Caitlin Collins, thank you. Um, when he didn't allow that press pool – or her to enter the press pool, that's a very uh, dangerous precedence because then it's the, mm -hmm. the uh, executive branch being able to pick and choose which favorable, favorable media that they want present at their, their uh, press pools for their, their, um, their press conferences. And it was bad when Obama did it. And it's bad when Trump did it. And I hate the fact that we've gotten to this point in society where, you know, it's it's a zero-sum game. It's either, you know, it's good or it's bad based on who's in charge. It has to be an equal application of our, our principles and our standards, standards across the board. So I look at the media. We, we can objectively look at the media and say the media is extremely biased and they present news in a very uh, biased manner to fit a specific narrative. However, they still have a role and we have to be able to allow them to have that role. But then we don't use the government to silence the media. We use our free speech and our abilities to make um, voluntary uh, transactions and decisions within the marketplace to dictate which media we want to support. And to, to finish my tangent, we're seeing that happen right now. The, the the large monolithic empire of the mainstream media is losing so much power because we have the ability to – like right now, we're having this podcast. We're able to have this conversation that is beyond the, the, the scope of a seven-minute soundbite conversation on mm -hmm. CNN in the morning. You yeah. have people like Jordan Peterson, uh, Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin, all these individuals who are having – uh, one hour, two hour, three hour long conversations and being able to reach an audience 
far beyond the scope of what they would have on on traditional media. So I think we're already starting to see a change, and that's a good thing because now we're we're responding to the media, the the the, the mainstream media, in a a manner that is a voluntary free market approach instead of having the government say this media is bad and we're going to to punish this media we're doing it on our own without the government and that's the way it's supposed to work do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people <laughs> yes because it, he's full well he's pro-life of course is number one but he is very you're full of common sense and wisdom and i and i know you have experiences too but when you say something like that how um, President Trump shouldn't, you know, cut off any reporter from the press pool. You're probably called, I don't know, a cuck or a libtard or something. And then if you praise <laughs> him for some sort of um, action on the economy, um, I don't know, what would the word be? Trump Magabot or Magahead? <laughs> Trump humper? Something like that. So, yeah, it's no, that sort of in between you look at each individual situation as it comes. I think that's how it should be done. But of course, you're probably a bad person no matter who's looking at, you know, what you're saying. Right. Oh, he's, not, he's, not, he's not waving his uh, f- flag above his head and, and uh, right. swallowing everything <laughs> the, that the party leaders uh, uh, d- dish out, which is, again, you know, uh, you know, Kim, like we've had the conversation before where I'm still, it's, it's difficult. It's getting more and more difficult as time goes on. But I, because I'm such a big proponent of closed primaries, I'm still a registered Republican because I really, like, I, if mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm going to be, you know, an advocate for that, I can't, like, you know, go independent. Um, but, but, um, oh, and meanwhile, gosh. I'm just wandering around in the hinterland and no one wants me. You have a lot of <laughs> friends out there, though. <laughs> no, the libertarians don't quite want me. The GOP doesn't want me. I'm just wandering over here. Yeah. I mean, to kind of piggyback on Andrea, I'm still a registered Republican too, for oh. the exact reason that you spoke of. I mean, <laughs> I am I am still a registered Republican because when the time comes to vote for someone like either it's a Rand Paul or an Austin Peterson. So, I mean, I don't mean to promote my own show here, but on the Brian Nichols show back in February, <laughs> I, I had a Dean Clancy, um, former White House policy advisor under the Bush administration. I had him on my show. Um, he was former vice president for Freedom Works. And um, we were actually discussing this very thing with regards to what is the role of the political party. And really, um, we kind of came to the consensus is that the, the political parties themselves, and more predominantly speaking to the Republican Party here, they are nothing more than vessels to promote a platform based on principles. So when I look at the Republican Party and you know the the vast infrastructure that it was within the Republican Party versus that of a party like the Libertarian Party that obviously will most uh, that more closely represents my beliefs and principles, I look at the Republican Party as a means to better bring those principles into governance to then actually make real change. So I. Whenever I get into the the of course little fights online with libertarians, which just seems to be something that libertarians are really good at, um, you know, I, I always come to the point and say, okay, name one right now sitting U.S. congressman or uh, member of U.S. Senate that is a registered libertarian, and they can't because there is none. However, I can look and say we have Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul. I would even go as far to say someone like uh, Mike Lee and and a little bit Ted Cruz, who are if not you know, libertarian in principle or leaning libertarian, and they are actually able to make real substantive change in government. And that's the whole goal of a political party is to bring your principles into government to make real change. The difference is, uh, is a small L libertarian being a libertarian in, in uh, principles and beliefs 
our goal is to take over the government to leave everybody else alone because we had this really weird belief that you as an individual can make better decisions for yourself than the government can, which is really radical, and I think it's really funny. (laughs) That actually leads into our next question, which you've almost pretty much already um, answered already. But Austin Peterson, you know, he's running as a GOP candidate for Senate in Missouri. Um, And I think I've seen this a few times online, how people have said, I don't know, he kind of it's bad that he gave up the libertarian moniker as he's running uh, for office, but you essentially, like I said, just answered it um, because there's not much, I guess, national pull for a libertarian um, as things are right now with Congress. And so he has essentially a better shot at getting seated if he runs as GOP. I'm not sure what the, um, how things are in Missouri for people if they look favorably upon libertarians or not, but I do think he would have a much better chance as just a GOP than a libertarian. Uh, Agreed. And I think this actually goes to a greater issue um, that the American electoral system has to really have a come to Jesus moment with is, are we going to maintain this electoral structure where you, you basically come down to a binary choice, the Republican or the Democrat, uh, now, George Washington, back in the 1700s, said, be, be aware of political parties. And there's a reason he said that, because you really shouldn't have it come down to the point that you're making the, the decision between the lesser of two evils. Now, the vision I want to see one day, and I know that it might be you know, 20, 30, maybe 50 years off, is a ranked choice voting system where instead of having this binary choice between the lesser two evils, you you actually get to to vote your values and vote your principles and really have your vote matter. I fully recognize that back in 2016, my vote for Gary Johnson, it didn't have an, a, a different uh, change in the outcome of the election. And that's a decision I had to make. Um, However, in a ranked choice voting system, I could have put Gary Johnson as my preferred candidate with a number one spot and then, you know, have uh, the number two spot, I don't know, Trump or Evan McMullen or whoever it may have been. Um, And then, you know, you rank uh, down the line to the last place being Hillary Clinton and Jill Stein. And each uh, vote is weighted differently based on the order of preference. So then at that point, you have the ability to say, yes, I'm voting my principles. And um, at the end of the day, I think you look at somebody like a Gary Johnson, and despite all of his, uh, his flaws as a candidate, I think a majority of Americans would have agreed that Gary Johnson was easily their number two choice. And if you get enough, enough number two choices across the board with Trump being a lot of people's number one and Hillary being their, their last place vote – I think someone like a Gary Johnson could have easily been the uh, the the, not, uh, the actual uh, winner of the presidential election, and I think we would all agree that I think looking at how we are as a nation right now, we'd be a lot better off. Um, you know, it it's not a situation where we have to say it's this zero sum game, it's this binary choice. I think we have to get to a point where we're going to look at other options as to how we elect our elected officials. And we're seeing states like Maine, for example, actually taking these steps to implement ranked choice voting. And I think it, we're going to see it's going to have some real um, substantial value in terms of how we're electing our, our elected officials. And then we're going to see in government how that will actually better uh, represent what it is that their constituents want. Yeah, I and always. Grant. Ha- <laughs> 
<laughs> I always, I'm sorry. I, I personally was like sitting there kind of like filtering it through the electoral college and, but yeah, I mean, you'd have to Im- implement these things on a like almost county by county basis. I mean, you would. absolutely. And, yeah. I mean that, and that's where it gets like, so that's why I, I always, I, I was talking actually just the other day with my boyfriend. I was like, I was like, we were kind of talking about Russian, you know, actually like meddling with like, you know, uh, actually taking votes and shifting them around and stuff like that. And it was like, I was like, well, the reason it didn't work is because you have like all these little, I used to do t- for years. I worked with the decision desk for, you know, back in 20. 20- 13 I think I started and so you know it's one of those things where it's like you you really when you really start working with election stuff you sit there and go like that stuff is almost impossible now to go back what you were saying before about um you know the short sound bites and things like that I've said this before on here I quit watching cable news pretty much at all in January and everybody if you can just read your news you have no idea how much context and how much actual information you are not getting and are getting mm-hmm. on in cable news. I don't care what channel you're watching. Um, Amen. It's, it's so true. Oh, it, it's just been like it when I actually hear it on somewhere I'm just, I kind of I'm just amazed at the level of like you know, are just the sound bites and the back and forth and and stuff like that. But that's the world that we live in, and so I, I understand that. Well, um, did you see that study that came out? It was I forget the college that did it, but they said they they pulled um the you had to be like an avid news watcher. So you you watch like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, NPR, I used to do and that. they asked them yeah, and they asked them five questions about domestic American policy, and of those five questions, the average consumer of news on television could only answer like 1.4 of those questions correctly and that's just like domestic news it's not even talking about foreign affairs and they looked at fox news and cnn which are easily two of the most partisan news networks Mm -hmm. on the left and the right respectively and both were the lowest scoring in terms of people actually answering the questions correctly. And if that doesn't speak to the issue that we're facing right now as a society, I don't know what to, what else would. Yeah, I'm with you, Andrea. I don't watch any cable news. And when people ask me what I watch, I'm, I just say that I read my news. And I try to read it from all different outlets, which I think we should all do. Um, don't just get it from one place and list to just one podcast and read just one column because that's not going to do much for you. Yeah, I, I actually mentioned the other day on Twitter um, the website Memory Random, which we use a lot for Red State. I, mean, I writers, love that site. It's just an yes. aggregate. It's not. Yeah, it's just it's you've got all different sources. And so any anybody it's M-E-M-E. I don't know. Spell the rest of it, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> but it's M-E-O-R-A-N-D-U-M. Yeah. 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 So um, anyways, I've, I've always been really bad at spelling out loud. It's, I can spell great <laughs> when I'm writing it, but not when I'm... Um. It's excellent, though. It it has so many headlines and it's updated, you know, every few minutes, I think. But they're headlines from everywhere. And the different topics are... It, it shows underneath those which sites are talking about the specific subject. It's great. And there's it's not cluttered with a bunch of stuff. It's just... You know, a new source. Yeah, and um, 
just as an aside, like we don't have to do all libertarian things, but just like talking about, um, Brian, when you're talking about like libertarianism and but also just just liberty minded people like the whole idea of our country was that things mattered more locally, that you needed, you know, that that your local government would matter mm-hmm. the most in your life. And that for the most part does kind of ring true, especially when it comes to, you know, local sales taxes, which, you know, we've got now we've got this whole new issue of, you know, a national sales tax. What do we do now that? You know, um, the Supreme Court said that, yes, you can, you know, online retailers should have to be forced by local governments to Mm -hmm. pay sales tax and things like that. Um, But we also see and you can comment on that. But at the same time, like we've we're seeing kind of a and and we all write and things like that. um, uh, But we're seeing kind of a little bit of rejuvenation of local journalism, but it's not funded at all. You're seeing just like these like gumshoe kids you know out there i know my most local newspaper is free it's it's a thing called the foothill gazette and it's just i don't know how that how it's funded i should probably look that up find out how it's but it's just a little thing you can pick up at the at the grocery store but it has the most local news you know Mm -hmm. um so yeah so as as i say to to that i mean i think we're just seeing a really big change in the uh, the medium of the overall dissemination of news. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we're seeing the, the traditional newspapers, as we look at them from respective communities, they're they're really going away. And yes, that, that we can look at it as a de- detriment to the overall ability to report on news locally, um, or we can look at it as an opportunity for a new form of medium to, to come out and really replace uh, what it is that those news agencies were doing. So I'll give you an anecdote. Um, I'm part of uh, my show is a part of the greater We Are Libertarians network. And we actually have a show. And so the, the show, the, the network itself is based out of Indiana. And um, there's a show on the network called The Boss Hog of Liberty, where they actually look at all local happenings within um, the area of it's I think it's northeast Indiana. And they have become essentially one of the top listened to shows within their respective area. And they have, uh, you know, they've had the mayor on, they've had city council members on, um, they've had, you know, local leaders on their show to discuss the issues of the, the community at, you know, at that time. And it gives you so much more context than you'd get from a thousand word uh, piece in a local newspaper. So, I mean, yes, it's an anecdote that that exists, but we're seeing a, a change in the medium as to how we're we're getting our news. And, you know, for example, on my show, I've had I, I have a lot of people running for elected office that appear in my show. I had, you know, speaking more locally, I had a gentleman who's running for New York State Assembly on my show from my home district. I had just this past week a gentleman running for Congress over in, in New York's 11th district in, in New York City. Um and I've had people who are running for for governor, Larry Sharp in New York. Uh, I've had people who are looking at running for president, um, and a guy named Adam Kokesh looking to secure the nomination for the Libertarian Party in 2020. So, I think yes, we're seeing that change, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's because the market's asking for you know th- this new form of of medium. And instead of being resistant to that, I think we have to embrace it and really try to to use this this new medium and do the best we can to to you know really break past those barriers that have been put in place by the old confines of the traditional media. I mean, think about your average person within a community. If they wanted to 
to work for the the news industry. They'd have to apply to, to the newspaper. They'd have to, you know, do the interview process. They'd have to actually get hired. Then they'd only be allowed to report the stories that they were told they could report by the editorial board. Now, if you're somebody with an internet connection, a microphone, or even a smartphone, you can go out and be a reporter just because you have that technology. And that's changed in the past 20 years. Um, I'm excited to see what happens in the next 20 years. We could, I mean, literally, if you have a cell phone, you can be a journalist. And that is the most amazing thing in 2018 that we've we've evolved that much in terms of our technology that now anybody can be a reporter, anybody can be a journalist, anybody can report on what's happening in their community, anybody can really report what's happening in, in the world. And I mean, here we are, I mean, Andrea, you're out west, I'm on the east coast, Kimberly, you're in, in more the, the midwest uh, or so. I mean, deep we're, south, I think, we're is what Kim... Deep, deep, <laughs> Yeah, deep south. There you go. Um, I mean, we're all across the, the, the United States. Ten years ago, doing what we're doing right now and having this interview would be damn near impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet here we are. We're having a full-fledged conversation that that's going to be way beyond what was ever in the realm of possibility. So I think we just got to embrace it. And we really have to, to take advantage of the opportunity we're given right now. And especially as the uh, big... Networks like CNN or Fox News or other ones, and they're very biased as they dig their heels in in this binary world and try to, you know, entrench themselves in these mindsets that they've had for decades. I think the people in the the Midwest and the Deep South and on the coast who don't have as much reach as these networks do, I think it's important for us to speak up and talk about, you know, our opinions on the subjects. Great. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, um, I have one last question for Brian. My favorite libertarian of them all. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just highlighting that because I'm not sure if people understand how difficult of a time I've had with libertarians in the past, just mostly because of the pro-life issue, which shockingly enough, I talk about quite often. But my last question is about the pro-life issue. But Brian, as um, Brett Kavanaugh is coming up on the confirmation hearings and everything um, with the idea that Roe slash Planned Parenthood versus Casey could be at some point reconsidered by the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts as a libertarian when it comes on the um, the issue of abortion? Should it go back to the states? Should it not even be reconsidered at the national level? What do you think about that? So this is where we have to put our constitutional hat on and uh, look and see what actually is being discussed. And really, if we're... This is going to make a lot of people mad. But if we're going to look at the pro-choice slash abortion issue as it should be looked at, which, in my opinion, is essentially murder. And I am I know it's going to make a lot of people mad. Um, not on this yeah, podcast. Would, uh, not on this. Okay, yeah. But <laughs> no, no, not as, this one, no. As, as Kimberly has kind of alluded to, there's a lot of libertarians who the, – the old analogy, you know, the squeakiest wheel gets the oil – that seems to be really true for the Libertarian Party um, or just libertarians in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, I think it does then, you know, capital uh, uh, capital offenses go to a state level. So if the state is going to look at something like abortion and if they're going to say, well, then that's not murder, that's not considered murder – then that would be a state-by-state basis, unfortunately. Um, I say unfortunately because that would mean that we're going to have something like um, a capital offense being taken place. Now, we've already seen states like Massachusetts and New York being proactive and saying, well, we're going to to codify within our own state constitutions or in-state law 
mm-hmm. what uh, we're going to do with regards to maintaining access to abortions, which um, you know the Federalist in me is saying, well, that was the whole idea in the first place. Um, same thing with regards to the uh, the same-sex marriage issue. I mean, I don't even know why government's in the marriage business to begin with. Uh, but when you're looking at the value of life, I believe that there is a very limited role for government. And of those is the right to maintain life, liberty, and property. So the life issue, it does it does really have this this fundamental issue in terms of are we going to allow states to keep on um, maintaining the ability to terminate life? And if so, then we need to, to they need to be consistent in their values and consistent in the application of the law. Okay, so if you're going to maintain access to abortion because you're saying that uh, abortion itself is is not a a capital offense then whenever um you know somebody kills a pregnant woman then that should no longer be a double homicide right if we're going to maintain this logic across the board i don't believe that's right i don't i don't believe that any state should should enact that however if if people want to to maintain that kind of um that kind of stance in terms of abortion then people can vote with their feet Move out of those states if you really mm-hmm. think it's it's that much of a detriment issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it's gross and it hurts to say, let the state face the consequences of of their their uber progressive um, policies in pro-choice. Um, you know, we're already seeing a a very dramatic birth decrease in America. And a lot of that can be put to um, the the economic state of our society right now, where people are just not looking to have children. But on top of that, I mean, we we see hundreds of thousands of abortions every single year, predominantly in minority communities. You can't say, I mean, poor choice people can't say in one hand that we need more money to pay for you know the 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 boomers and and to pay for the next generation in all these welfare uh, subsidies that are given up by the government, and then in the same breath be able to support a a policy that's taking away the future taxpayers of America, which I hate to look at the value of life as a taxpayer, but unfortunately that's how a lot of um, progressives look at um, an individual is how much money can you give to the government and then the government can take that money and give to somebody else. And that's just a sad reality where we are today. Yeah, I always find it very amusing that, uh, you know, someone like Scott Peterson, who killed his wife, Lacey, who was nine months pregnant, was, you know, in California, the state of California, which, you know, coddles Planned Parenthood, um, which would love to have babies, you know, aborted or not love to, but like, you know, want the right to abort babies up until childbirth um, that they he was convicted of a double homicide in the state of Mm -hmm. California. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's like and why what? Why are we giving millions of dollars to a nonprofit in Planned Parenthood? As 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 a taxpayer, I don't understand how that cannot make somebody mad. Like, if you were okay, let's just give a really silly example. But like, if you were a taxpayer and you knew that millions of dollars was quite literally being given from the government as a subsidy to, let's say, the NRA, progressives would have their minds explode in fury mm-hmm. because they're like, my money shouldn't be used for this. And I'm like, you're right. And my money shouldn't be used for progressive causes like Planned Parenthood. So how about this? Instead of picking and choosing what organizations we want our money to go to via the government, how about we just stop the government subsidizing all these different pet projects? Instead, let you as an individual donate your money to whatever causes you see fit. I mean, people were trying to make a point of saying, well, look it, we're going to donate to Planned Parenthood and Mike Pence's name. And then when he tries to get rid of subsidies, well, he'll well, he'll know our money's still going to him, and I'm like, good. That's the point. You should be <laughs> right. doing that on your own. 
I know they're like, we're going to have a bullathon for abortion. I'm like, thanks, you're proving my point. <laughs> that Planned Parenthood does not need federal dollars to exactly. subsidize to subsidize abortion because no matter what they say, it's always you know, it does the money doesn't go to abortion. It's like, but your services are made to made cheaper by the fact that the abortions anyway it's uh, that whole thing but now (laughs) not to go from something of a weighty subject and kim said that that was the last question but it was not the last question question. because brian you need to weigh in on this (sighs) last week we had (laughs) national vanilla ice cream day and kim apparently for all of her love of chocolate poo hummus does not like the deliciousness and the simplicity of a good scoop of vanilla ice cream. So it's it's boring. That's why it's so vanilla. Okay, that's why. That was like that, a pun, and you didn't even mean it to be a pun. <laughs> <laughs> and I consider it to be a top tier ice cream flavor. So Brian, can you break our uh, little truce? Well, it's not even a truce right now. We're we're in full on war over this issue. Mm-hmm. Same with chocolate. And it's, it's a binary choice. You must make a decision, Brian. Yeah, oh, no, you no, can't no, no, say no. Because I was just gonna say, as as the libertarian, I'm gonna <laughs> tell you, you're both wrong, and it's actually peanut butter ice cream is the way to go. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I actually like that. Peanut butter ice cream is pretty good. You can get peanut butter See, ice cream. See, look, I'm the libertarian at, bringing yes. people together. People <laughs> help people. Wonderful thing. Yeah, you can get peanut butter <laughs> peanut butter milkshakes at uh, the old drive-in in old Fairhaven in, in, in our, like, county See, it's it's a little cute little area, but yeah, you can get buttermilk. I mean, not butter. Ooh, buttermilk ice cream. I don't know about that's that one. Uh, peanut butter. Gosh. <laughs> I don't know why I said buttermilk. Slippery slope from vanilla to buttermilk. Yes. My gosh. Oh, they that. had they had the. But you know, I was gonna say, you know what? We can we can make milkshakes. Uh, peanut butter milkshakes out of vanilla and chocolate ice cream. And if I don't think that that wraps up our conversation and <laughs> such a nice little bow, yes. I don't know what else would. <laughs> that's, that pretty that's... much summarizes everything. Yes. All right, Brian, where can everybody find you? Absolutely. On the internet, not in real life. So. I mean, if they want to find me in real life, just come over to Philadelphia and you'll want to leave really fast. So it's okay. <laughs> um, but if you want to find me online and, and you like what I'm saying, please swing over to uh, my Twitter. Um, that's where I do all my political commentary. It's at B Nichols Liberty. Um, or if you want to check out my show, um, you can also go over to anywhere where podcasts are found. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. Um, I mean, really anywhere you can find podcasts and it's the brian nichols show um i do a weekly show so you know folks if you're if you're interested in things from a libertarian perspective um you know obviously feel free to check me out but part of what makes my show unique um as a libertarian show is that i i actually kind of gotten rid of the name libertarian from my show i say a liberty show um because my goal is to bring on people from all different means of of thought so i've had people from literally like the the far left progressive socialist leaning folks all the way to uh, people who are, you know, rabid anarchists on the right. Um, and the real goal of my show is to have conversations with people that don't agree, to find areas of agreement where we can say, okay, we disagree on seventy percent of stuff, but here's thirty percent of things that we can agree on. Let's focus on those thirty percent agreement things to really make some substantive changes. Um, so, if you're interested in that, it's the Brian Nichols Show um, again on Twitter, also on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And uh, if anybody decides that they like what they hear and they want to support me. 
Uh, feel free to subscribe to my Patreon. Also at B Nichols Liberty. And then one last little plug I have to because I'm a capitalist. I'm selling a uh, – it's a bumper sticker. Uh, it's called Don't Hurt People, Don't Take People's Stuff. Um, I'm selling those to help spread the message of liberty. So if they're interested, shoot me an email at thebriannicholsshow at gmail.com. That's awesome. me. All righty. Kim, where can everybody find you? You can find me um, on Twitter at Southern Keeks, K-E-E-K-S. You can find me on Facebook at Kimberly Ross Ryder. Of course, I'm at Red State, and you can also find me on the Washington Examiner. All righty, and you can find me at Andrea and Ruth on Twitter and Andrea Ruth page on Facebook and at Red State. So we will see you next time on another episode of The Right Side. Bye. Bye.